Welcome to another episode of the Blue Coats Brass Podcast. The world has seen a lot of change over the last few weeks, and so today we wanted to address the experience of being a person of color in DCI. So joining me today are Blue Coats Brass staff members Rick Brown and Brian Warfield, as well as recent Blue Coats age out Richard Alvarado. Can each one of you just tell us a little bit about uh, when and where you marched and taught? My name is uh, Ricardo Brown. Everybody calls me Rick. Uh, my marching experience uh, in DCI started in 1999 uh, with the Crossman. Back then, we were still from Delaware. <laughs> I took a year off. My mom said, absolutely not. You're not marching drum corps. You're going to college. So I took a year off, and then I marched uh, from 2001, one, two, three, four. Uh, with the cadets drum and bugle corps. Um, after I aged out, I stayed there for another two years and uh, taught uh, and did some ad, uh, admin work with the drum corps. And then uh, I took a, a hiatus from drum corps for a while to learn how to be a teacher. <laughs> and uh, in 2014, I was given an opportunity to join the staff of the Blue Coats, and I have been on staff with the Blue Coats since. Awesome. What about you, Brian? Yeah, uh, so my name is Brian Warfield, and my marching experience, I was with the Bluecoats in 2007, uh, took 2008 off to go to school, uh, and then came back in 2009, aged out in 2010. Uh, the summer 2011, I spent the, the year with the Columbus Saints, uh, and then after that, I spent five years with the Santa Clara Vanguard from 2012 to 2016. And I've been on the Blue Coast Brass staff since uh, 2017. Cool. And Richard? Uh, my name is Richard Alvarado. Um, I started marching in 2017 at the Blue Coats. Um, and then I spent three years there. So uh, 2017, 18, and 19, aging out in 19. And then recently just joined the brass staff at the Cadets um, as a, a low brass intern. Awesome. So let's just go ahead and get right into this. And Brian and Richard, you both marched uh, at the Blue Coats. Uh, however, Rick and I both marched at the Cadets in, around the same time period. And even though we were at the same place right around the same time, I aged out in 98, and then you started there just a couple years later, even though there are so many similarities, I'm sure our experiences were not really the same. So uh, I think in the first part of this episode, let's just kind of have each one of you talk about your experience in DCI as a marching member. So I think we'll kind of go chronologically. So let's go ahead and start with you, Rick. So I just want to start by saying that uh, the uh, leadership has changed in both of the drum corps I marched. So I'm quite, you know, I know that those experiences may be different for members now, but um, I started out marching in 1999, as I said uh, before. And I was very, very, very new to core style. When I got to high school, I had every intention of being the world's greatest running back. So I wanted to play football. So I played football my freshman year, um, and I absolutely hated it. It was like the worst thing I'd ever done in my life. <laughs> we didn't win one game, not one game. Uh, I watched my friend break his leg. It was, it was just terrible. So um, I decided that um, football and sports, well, not sports, but football just wasn't for me. So I didn't march my first couple of years in high school. Um, I was in the concert band. I was first chair trumpet player in the concert band. I was all district trumpet player. 
I was the guy that would come to band practice in his football clothes. You know, that was me. <laughs> so um, the end of my sophomore year, going into our junior year, my band director decided that he was, well, he had been doing it the year before. And I went with the band the year before, which was 1997, to see a drum corps show. And I wasn't really into it at the time. I had seen it on TV, like in the early 90s and stuff. I was like, man, this is cool. These guys playing high notes. Yes. And um, in 1998, Bob, (laughs) I saw the cadets for the first time. You know, because I marched cadets, people would think that that's the reason why I got in the drum corps. But this is a story I haven't really told much. The reason why I actually got in drum corps was because of the blue coats. Uh, So in in 1998, blue coats went on before you guys, Bob. My best friend and I were, um, his name was Calvin. We both were trumpet players and we were really into high notes. We were really into, you know, everything marching man at the time. And uh, Blue Coats had these two uh, soloists and they were incredible, man. These guys were like just all in the uh, upper register. So after the show, we actually went over to the truck and got an opportunity to meet these guys. And these guys gave us lessons, man. And they just really made it to where it was like drum corps is what we got to do. We just have to do it. And, you know, I saw the cadets after Blue Coats and uh, the cadets were like, you know, I know we can't cuss, but they were amazing. So I decided that the cadets was the drum corps I wanted to march. So uh, I went to the, YA used to have this experience called international auditions where they would, um, back then Crown, Boston, Cadets and Crossmen and Sunrisers were all under YEA. So you could audition for all five cores at the same time. And so um, in 1999, I, we went, my friend Aaron and I went to uh, international auditions. I got the guts to audition for cadets and I made the cadets. My friend Aaron made Crossmen. I didn't have any money. My friend Aaron's parents offered to sponsor me. So I ended up marching Crossmen that summer. I was 16 years old, you know, wet behind the ears, had never marched this style of marching before. I had a rough summer, man. I was not very good. Obviously, 16-year-old kid had never done it before. I was not good at all, um, but I was, a, I was a good player. So I was able to make the drum corps, but visually, I really, really struggled. And Bob, I'm sure you can speak to this too. DCI was a lot different back then because there was this pressure to always be there, always be, you know, like the guy that, you know, don't be that guy. That was like the phrase everybody used to say back then. Don't be that guy. Right. And I was absolutely that guy <laughs> back then. So, you know, I missed rehearsals. I was young, man. I did. I had no idea that what I was doing was considered to be, you know, not the right way to uh, approach drum corps. So I, um, I was not a great member and I, you know, I, I can say that with uh, confidence, but, you know, my experiences there were horrible uh, from constant bullying. My seat partner back then used to wear a Confederate flag belt uh, every single day on the bus. And he was from Virginia too. And so I'm sitting there like, dude, you're from the same area I am. That's not something that we do. And he used to always say uh, it's a heritage, not uh, hate. And I'm sitting there like, you know, with all the conversations that are going on in the country right now, to be that blind, even in 1999, you know, I know it was different times, but, you know, it it was definitely on purpose. He wore this Confederate flag belt every single day. 
And so that was my introduction on the bus, having to sit next to this person. And, you know, so that, that happened on a regular basis. And then um, there were two instances, once with a bass drum player. And at the end of tour, when we were all going home, uh, I went, a member of the mellophone play, uh, section uh, being called the N-word on tour with the Crossman having to be, you know, confront these people. I come from a city where you just, you, you're not going to, you know, disrespect me in any way, shape or form. So of course this all came, always came to a situation where I almost had to defend myself and to be looked at as the villain already because I wasn't that good. And then, you know, on top of that, having to defend myself, it just didn't work out well. This just didn't happen from members. This happened from staff members. There was a member of the visual staff who made it his point to embarrass me and in front of the drum corps every chance he got. And he was an older member of the visual staff who had been around for years and everybody looked up to this guy. He was one hell of a marcher. Uh, he was a good teacher, but he made it his point to embarrass me in front of the visual staff every chance he get. He got. I had, I, that was my view of drum corps, Bob. I thought it was the, you know, the worst thing possible, but there were people that were there that year that made it. So like the whole summer, I just wished I was at cadets. I was like, man, I just want to get out of here. And 99 was one of those years that, you know, people that March cadets talk about how hard that summer was, but I was one of the people I wanted to be there every single day. And uh, it was solidified to me that the cadets is where I want to be because the person that treated me the best and treated me like a human being that summer was two people. And that was two cadets. That was Mike Eschen and Daniel Benton. All right. Those two people and Don Taylor, uh, who was, a, was our um, brass co-caption here. Those three people made drum corps still something I wanted to do that summer because they were just they were not easy on me. They, they definitely pushed me and they helped me grow and to see what this activity really was. But they did it in a humane way. They didn't call me out of my name. I'm sure there's people that march 99 Crossman that don't even know what my real name is because one of the vets decided that they were going to call me P-Town and because uh, that was a nickname for Portsmouth, Virginia, which is where I'm from. Everybody from our area calls it that. So one person decided that that was my name. And to this day, if I meet a person from Crossman that I marched with back then, I'm sure you know some of them don't even know my real name. That is the experience that drum, you know, drum corps was for me at the beginning. When I moved on to the cadets, it was better. It was absolutely better. But there were challenges there as well. Uh, two two uh, in particular that I would like to discuss is when I first got to cadets, um, this was around the same time that the Dave Chappelle show was like really, really big. Like everybody was quoting Dave Chappelle. And I was too. And, you know, it was just, it was hilarious. I'm Rick James. So um, <laughs> we were, um, it was, it was huge at the time. And um, you, we all know that the Dave Chappelle show explored some pretty racy topics, you know, from use of the N word to, you know, what is, what the black experience is and so forth, but he did it in a way of comedy. Well, I can remember on two, on two or three separate occasions, having to check people from quoting Dave Chappelle but using the N-word in their quotes. And I'm sure they didn't think they were being racist, but you know, I had to make sure that they understood what that what that word meant to a lot of people. And I think it's just the insensitivity that that really struck me with 
with DCI. Yeah, we're all here to do a job. And at the cadets, we did the job at a high level, you know, but, you know, to be that oblivious to, you know, American history was was a surprise to me. And then, you know, over the years, you know, I sailed at the cadets. I enjoyed my experiences there. I hyped on the things that meant being a cadet. I loved having to shave every day. I loved not talking in uh, in retreat, you know, being the core that was the alt, always being a professional. I hyped off that. I loved that part of the core. And by my age out year, you know, I marched four years at the cadets. By my age out year, I was the oldest member of the age-wise of the drum corps. I was the um, one of the longest team, the only person that had been there longer than me. There were some people there that marched four years like I did. But the only person that was there, there was a baritone player who had been there the year. He got there the year before we did. So, uh, but he was a lot younger than us. I was one of the oldest members and all. So I decided, you know, I really want to be drum major. Uh, in years past, I had a really, really good relationship with uh, the drum major from the previous two years, a gentleman named Sam Saunders. I think you know Sam, right? Yeah, we marched yeah. together. Yeah, Sam um, Sam was the drum major the two years previous. And Sam would help me out, out, out all the time. Like Sam is such a, a good friend, man. He's, you know, on the front lines helping with the struggle that's going on right now. But you know, Sam turned me on to many things that I had never, like, he's the one that introduced me to Radiohead. I can remember sitting on the floor, getting ready to go to bed. And he was like, man, you ever heard of this group? And to this day, it's one of my favorite bands, you know? So Sam um, helped me all the time. And Sam uh, was a larger guy. And so in 2002, Sam, who had been there since 98, decided he wanted to be drum major. So they, instead of them saying, no, because you're larger, they said, if you can lose the weight, um, to fit into the uniform, you can be drum major. And Sam went on a diet. And when he got back in 2002, man, this guy was like super skinny. He looked great. So I was like, man, I can do the same thing. So I was expecting that same result, you know, because I was a great member. I, you know, I caused no trauma there uh, in 2004. So the core director at the time was like, uh, all right, cool. We'll let you do the, you, the drum major responsibilities. It was myself and another four-year member of the baritone section, one of my greatest friends, a guy named Phil Perry. So uh, at the 2004 first camp, we were doing all the responsibilities of drum major. We were raking, we woke the core up every day. We made sure everybody was, was where they needed to be the whole time. We we did all these things and it was great. Um, and so we had every intention, like, man, we're going to be drum majors. It's going to be awesome. This is what we want to do. You know, how can we improve on this legacy that had lasted for so long? And it was our, and for me, it had an extra special meaning because in the 70 year history of the core, there had only been two black drum majors. And to this day, there's only been three, <laughs> you know, like this core is over 80 years old now. And there's only been three uh, people in the ultimate leadership position as far as a member. So it meant that much more to me. And I'm really good friends with Damon Grant, who was the drum major, right? You know, the second black drum major in the core. So long story short, we uh, get to the end of camp. You know, I, I always struggled to pay tour fees. DCI was expensive back then. Now it's like ridiculous. Richard. I, I feel for you, my brother. <laughs> but uh, yeah, back then it, it cost sixteen hundred bucks to march cadets. I always struggled to pay tour fees, and so at the end of camp, um, right before we were about to go home, George sits the whole core down and he announces uh, two really, really good friends, uh, Will Plank and Matt, as the drum majors. And I was surprised <laughs> to say the least, 
But these guys were really good friends of mine are to this day. I talked to Will a couple of days ago. You know, I was happy for them because, you know, he couldn't have picked two better people to lead the drum corps. And they did an amazing job that year. Uh, we dealt with a lot of adversity and they helped us get through that summer. I got approached at the end of camp, not by the core director, but by the uh, member of the staff. And she pretty much told me, oh, yeah, you weren't selected because you've had trouble playing paying tour fees. So just pick like the random, most random thing you can think of just to, you know, have the excuse. And it was widely known back then that they picked drum majors about how you looked in the uniform. So, you know, it's cool. I let that go. But I, you know, I was I was upset. So I was thinking about leaving. I had reached out to, a you know, another drum corps and attended, you know, planning on attending some camps and then decided that uh, I wasn't going to let this defeat me. So I came back to cadets. And uh, I won cadet of the year in 2004. I just worked my tail off and made sure that I was an example. Yeah, you know, my experiences in drum corps, have, I have a lot of great experiences. The cadets helped give me the life that I have now. You know, I, I met some of the best people in my life. The best teacher I ever had, I met at the cadets. And that's Dean Westman. I tell him that all the time. I know it probably makes him feel all crazy. But Dean was the best teacher I've ever had, uh, He at, both as a man uh, that cared about people. He always talked about Mr. Ronald Thornton down in Houston, who's a legend in the city, taught at Willow Ridge High School, uh, and how he took him under his wing. And, you know, I've had all these great experiences, but being an African-American man in this activity made it that much harder. And I was lucky, but, you know, I had uh, an African-American um, instructor every year I taught. I was at Cadets. Um, my first two years, I had Eric Prince, Eric Prince and Sean Murphy uh, from Texas. And then um, I had Mr. Charles Carson, who's a professor at UT. Um, so I was lucky, but, you know, I thank God for the experiences. But if I had to do it all over again, I would not want people to have to deal with a lot of the things that I dealt with in DCI. All right. So, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about your experience as a member? Yeah. Um Here's my super brief exposure to drum corps. Uh, I was in a super small parade drum corps called Light of Indy. Uh, and it was, yeah, I know. It was awesome. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> there's this guy, uh, Jeff Payne, uh, who uh, got my brother and I in the group. Um, and I played on a tooth valve bugle. Uh, it was a piston rotary thing. It was wild. And I thought that was really heavy. Uh, so I did that for a few years. Um, and then... And high school, went to Lawrence Central High School in Indianapolis. Um, at the time, it was really good. My exposure there was, was cool, just so the marching activity in general. But um, I really started following drum corps. So, Rick, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I remember distinctly watching uh, the cadets in 2001 rehearse. Mm. And I remember watching you and not ever thinking that there was somebody black in the activity. And then when Drum Corps was on PBS, I remembered, of course, illegally recording those shows. Uh, so, and I just remember pointing out to my mom, I was like, but I, that dude is cool. Like, I, I want to be like that dude. And of course, like I played tuba, so I'm nowhere close to you. But uh, uh, so I did that in high school um, and was all about auditioning for the Cavaliers because at that time they were still, you know, at the top of the activity. Um, I watched the video of the Bluecoats on YouTube when YouTube at first kind of became a thing. Uh, 
the quality of that video was absolutely terrible, but I remember being struck by the, the horn line. And so I auditioned there for the summer of 2007 and uh, had obviously, like most people, you have no idea what the activity is going to be like when you get into it. You just do your best to survive. My parents are always, like most Black parents, they expect that you have to do twice as much in order to really be accepted on the same level as everybody else. It's always been that way. So I, I did my best to, to bust my tail that summer. And there was one person that I had marched with who throughout the summer, he'd go and uh, this person used to put his arm around my shoulder and sing songs about the KKK uh, throughout the summer. And uh, the first time that that happened, I just laughed it off because I've, nobody's ever done that to me ever, you know, but I just laughed it off and, and didn't think much about it. And then about the fourth time that summer that I remember that happening, I remember pushing the person away and not talking to that person for the rest of the summer. Uh, December 2008, I took that off. Uh, 2009, same person was in the drum court. The same thing started happening, uh, but on a more frequent basis. You know, and at that point in time, I was I was pretty over it. There was an issue that came up at the the time in 2009. Uh, that's when I started. Uh, now it's about a year into growing dreadlocks, and there was a pretty significant issue that came up with that hairstyle. But that's another story for another time. But yeah, no, that that that, that summer was rough, uh, just because there was a, a weekly exposure to the KKK and songs and and stuff like that that was made to make me feel uncomfortable, you know, but I just, I had left it at that and had plans on leaving the drum corps after 2009, but ended up going back in 2010. Uh, the experience that summer was better because one, that person was gone out of the drum corps, but two, just the, the personnel was different. Um, I was older. Uh, the show was really cool. We had a great summer, yada, yada, yada. After that, after even teaching with the Vanguard, uh, they they always, because they're West Coast group, they always end up doing a full country tour. And like most people, once you hit Swamp Tour, things get different. It's the weather's terrible. Uh, it's hot and muggy and whatnot. But as we're traveling throughout the night, I mean, that's when, as a member or a staff member, you are, you have to be very mindful of where you get out, when you get out, how long you're off the bus and away from the bus. Even if we go to a, a truck stop that is huge and it's got a lot of people, I mean, you still don't, you don't go far away from the bus. You just don't. I remember being in Texarkana for a few rehearsal days uh, with the Vanguard. And I was off uh, on the phone talking to my mom uh, and my dad. And, and I remember just going to the edge of the street from where the stadium was at and had a beer bottle thrown at me. It's uh, funny calling me the N-word there. Not specifically related to drum work, but I mean, that happens on tour, you know, and uh, being back with the Bluecoats, there hasn't been any issues that have come up lately because I think a lot of people, uh, especially within the organization, are more conscious of what happens. I know that the Bluecoats, uh, from when I started all the way up till now, uh, the diversity has changed pretty drastically in a great way. You know, I, I think there may be two or three of us uh, when I marched my first year, uh, now we're, there's a lot. I think this, up, this upcoming summer uh, before the pandemic, there was 
a significant amount of just African-Americans within the drum corps. And that doesn't include um, the other ethnicities that, that were represented. I can't say that there was a conscious effort for that to be the case. It just happened to be that way, uh, which is phenomenal. You know, so my my experience as a, as a member was good for the most part. But the, I remember the uh, distinctly the, the KKK songs uh, and then looking at this person in the face and this person had the biggest smile as if they they had won a prize or gotten a gift or something. Um, I'll never, I'll never forget, never forget that. So, yeah. Did you have anyone to talk to about that or? Mm-mm. No, uh, my first year, I think the only African-American staff member was uh, Marlita Matthews. Uh, and she's with the, the, the Vanguard, but no, I didn't feel comfortable talking to anybody about that, uh, especially being a rookie because you're just taught to show up to your job, not ask questions, you know, the whole nine, but no, mm-hmm. What happened when you would talk with your family about what was going on? I don't think I talked to my family about that until well after I aged out. Because I know if that would have been the case, they would have pulled me from the organization. And I probably would not have gone back to March anymore or have any relationship to the activity. Knowing my parents, they wouldn't want me to be exposed to something like that anymore. Uh, But just with the current state of America that exposure doesn't really, it, it doesn't matter. You can, I could walk up the street from where I live right now and potentially be um, in the exact same situation that I was when I was on tour. So, Richard, how about you? You're a little, a little more recent in the blue coats world and in just the DCI activity. What's your experience been like for the last three years? Uh, yeah. So um, it's definitely different than, um, you know, obviously the nineties, early two thousands, even, you know, within the last, 10 years, you know, when, when Brian was a member, but, you know, I was just super fortunate to, and, and Brian kind of touched on it, you know, the era of blue coats now, you know, they're more conscious of things, but I just think overall, they're just better people. And they're just good people who respect people, you know, regardless of, you know, background or, you know, there's, there's no, you know, clicks or anything, you know, like there's, oh, brass is separated from guard, like, you know, even if, you know, not talking about the color of your skin, you know, people are just, it's like a melting pot and people respect you regardless of what group you're in or what section you're in. And I, I think that's just something not seen everywhere all the time. And so I, I was just super fortunate and I got involved and I wanted to get involved in drum corps because of my high school program, I graduated from Lake Ridge high school in, in Mansfield and the environment was great. You know, it was, and, and like drum corps and every other group I've been a part of, they took me for the person I was, the musician I was, the marcher I was, the member I was, you know, and didn't care about anything else. Um, and I think because of that experience I had during my upbringing, that's how I think, too. you know, I don't think twice about um, how someone looks and I'm, you know, just because that never happened to me. And I'm fortunate because of that. And it, it's sad that it does happen. But I, I've been extremely blessed um, to not really experience any of that. Just backtracking to, to when I first got involved, um, two members who marched in 2014. Rick, you might know them. Seth Neufeld, mm-hmm. um, he was a baritone player. And then Sam Alewala, he was a guard member. And he was actually my drum major 
uh, my freshman and sophomore year at Lake Ridge. Um, and they started in 2014. And, and um, during my time at high school, I looked up to them a lot, you know, and, and uh, for them to join that group with that show, it was like, wow, I want to do this. And um, the third person who influenced me wanted to not only march, but join the Bluecoats was, um, and Brian, Brian knows him, my high school band director, Alberto Ocasio. You know, he marched on tuba, he's a tuba player, 06, 7, 8, 9, 10, and, you know, was section leader and marched with Brian. You know, and th- so those three people, you know, those are the ones that I credit, you know, sparking my interest in drum corps, you know, and my interest in the Bluecoats. I wanted to be a Bluecoat. You know, ever since I saw, my band directors took us to uh, DCI San Antonio in 2013, as part of like a leadership team retreat. And uh, I think it was somewhere in uh, New Braunfels where there was a stadium rehearsal before a show, pre-show rehearsal. So the first live rehearsal I saw was Carolina Crown that year. And it was awesome, you know, it was great. And we watched that show and, and we went to the Alamo Dome and we were there all through finals. This was still with the leadership team. And, and I was able to watch some of the best you know, the best in the country. So that was, that was awesome because I saw that before I knew that Seth and Sam were going to join because that was a year before. And then once they joined, I was like, wow, that's what I saw in San Antonio. That's actually attainable by, you know, someone I know, but you know, someone I went to high school with, you know, maybe I could do that. So once they joined drum court seemed like something that was really real. Cause you know, you're, I was a sophomore at the time in high school and people in drum corps and just the whole activity, it's like a unicorn. Like, it's like, is it actually real? Like, wow, those people actually do that, you know? And once they did, I was like, wow, maybe that that's a, a real possibility that I can have someday, you know? And, and once I did fast forward X amount of years, uh, 2017 is when I uh, started and, you know, I had a great, support system in the drum corps, um, you know, from my section, um, you know, Dave Whitfield was my section leader, my rookie year, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better section leader and the brass staff, like, like, you know, Brian and, and Aaron Duggar and, um, Matt Stratton, they were, you know, all my mentors, my rookie year, you know, I could not have asked for a better support system as a rookie in the blue coats. And, uh, and 2017 was a pretty tough summer just the way the summer was structured and all that, but for different reasons. And I could not have just asked for a better support system. And um, I think in my three years, I might've had one comment on um, the color of my skin. And, you know, I, I always try to be super mindful of how I respond to people and what I respond with. But I don't think I remember you know, I just pretended I didn't hear it. And anyone who knows me knows I start the summer one color and uh, I end the summer 1000 shades darker, you know, and it's, I never think twice about it. You know, it's just something that, you know, through my upbringing, I just never really, that never really mattered to me. And, you know, I was thankful that, like I said, the staff, my peers, my classmates, and just everyone I was around took me for the musician I was, you know? And so I kind of just brushed the comment off and I, I didn't, I pretended to not hear it because I find that that response sometimes 
can speak to the person that made the comment even more than a harsh response, you know, just so, I mean, it's just, I was very fortunate to not have that cloud over me um, during my three years there. So, um, and each year got better, like each year, like just the vibe of the drum corps, the personnel just got better. So I, I couldn't have asked for a better upbringing in just being a marching member. So, and it's, like I said, it's sad that some people can't say that. Some people my color can't say that, you know, but it's, I've been blessed. I've been, I've truly been blessed. Can any of you talk a little bit about what your thoughts are on just the diversity in the drum corps activity when you were a member first, I guess? My experience, like I said, was different, Bob. I went to an HBCU. I was a member of the Norfolk State University Spartan Legion, and I had a great experience, man. Like, it was just so, so good. So when I went up to audition for cadets, I actually had one, three people that went with me. Uh, so it was four of us in a car. We rode up. They all We were all in the Spartan Legion together. Nell was a baritone player. Cliff was a, a, a snare drum player, and so was Andrea. And out of the four of us that went, three of us made the drum corps. And I think that speaks volumes, Bob, because one of the areas I think DCI, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but one of the areas I think DCI can really improve right now is just reaching out to programs that are different than what DCI looks like. You know, like if you watch some of those videos, you know, from those trumpet sections back then that was in at Norfolk State, we were doing like ridiculous things. Like we could play high all day long. And I know DCI Corps struggled to find lead trumpet players every year. I know because I auditioned people every year, you know, like it's, it's a challenge, but you, because there's no outreach there. So when I marched the drum corps, my first year, we, we had, uh, we, the three of us made the drum corps and the three of us were the only African-Americans in the drum corps as far as uh, instrumentalists. Then there were two uh, in the color, three in the color guard. So, you know, that, you know, that was very diverse, but you know, what got me back into the activity, Bob, to be honest with the fact that, you know, the core director in 2013 posted a picture on Facebook. And the picture said the best staff in DCI. And I was like, man, that's cool. So I just happened to look at this picture. I enlarged the picture and there was not, not one black person. There was not one person of color period in this whole picture. And I'm sitting there like, you know, the diversity is getting worse as the years are going, going along, you know, back then there, like I told you, you know, I was fortunate. Eric Prince was my first trumpet tech in DC in uh, the cadets. And he, we are still great friends to this day. Uh, one of the best mentors I've ever had. And so when I first got the cadets, he, he, he gave me that talk that Brian said his parents gave him. And my dad had given me, you know, those talks about being a black boy. You know, we, we know those talks when you with the police, you know, act a certain way so you can just come home. When you go to all white situations or majority white situations, you must be better than in order to be considered equal. You know, don't complain. Don't do anything. Just do your job and call us if you need to complain. You know, that's our experience. And even as a staff member, Bob, I purposefully don't talk to certain members of the core because I don't want to be assumed that I'm, you know, the over-sexualization of black men. I don't want somebody to automatically assume that I'm trying to hit on a, a 18 year old person, you know, like a female. I don't like that's not 
I don't even want that assumption. So I purposely don't even talk to people in the drum corps for that reason. I, I watch my attitude because I don't want to be considered the angry black man. You know, that's that's my experience. And it's because there aren't many people that look like me, you know, and I've already, you know, let everyone know I was lucky, you know, because my experience was slightly uh, different there. So, you know, just lack of lack of staff, lack of people that look like you, you know, lack of outreach, temporary attitude. And then, you know, it's bad for us as black men. But for black women, (laughs) like it's even worse. Like, um, I don't know Marlena personally, but I know who she is because she's literally the only black woman in DCI that people know, you know, so it's already challenging for us. You know, that's why I think the work that Genevieve is doing with, you know, with the outreach she's doing for women is super important. Just imagine being a person that comes from experience like mine, Bob, and nobody looks like you. And you come from an experience where everybody does look like you. You know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's funny you bring that up. Rick, when when I was coming up in, in the activity, I just assumed that drum corps was something that black people didn't do. You know, like like you and I and Richard and and just all the all of the African Americans that have been in the activity, we were unicorns. Uh, because when you look at it, uh, especially at the time when I was coming up, like when both Bob and and Rick, when you guys were marching, I didn't see black people and if you did out of at the time 128 there might be four you know and then that 120 went up to 135 that number didn't change you know now we're in the 150 state and so there's going to be more just because the numbers are bigger but i just assumed that that was the case that there weren't a whole lot of black people in it because uh, drum corps is not like uh, the hbcus it was something completely different I remember we had a show in um, Louisiana, I think it was at the uh, Raging Cajun stage, the stadium. And that was the first time, I think, in any show that I've been to being associated with the activity where I saw an HBCU band in the stands. Uh, and I could tell because they're all wearing the same shirts. Uh, obviously, they're all black. But I remember that being the case. I've never seen that many black people in one place watching our activity ever you know so yeah i, I don't know it, like i just assumed that there weren't a whole lot of black people in it you know? and it's weird brian too richard and I'll, I'll let you jump into rich i'm sorry man but it's weird because we teach brian at in my opinion historically one of the most diverse drum corps like mm-hmm. you know blue coats in the past had a long tradition in the early 90s all the way through the end of the 90s where they had black drum majors, you know, Mm -hmm. J.D., Charles, all these guys that are still active in the blue coats today, you know, that's who I was looking up to. Like I told you, the the, the gentleman that was a soloist at the blue coats in 1998 was black. And I was fortunate enough recently, Charles was able to link us up. And I hadn't talked to this brother since 1998. And I was able to tell him how much of an influence on my life he was, you know, and it's the community so small. We all know each other. You know what I'm saying? We are, we all know each other. Like we know people's names. When I first started, started marching drum for the soprano player that I looked up to and we don't know each other from anybody. He could walk past me right now. I probably wouldn't know who he is, but I know it was Nate from the blue devils. Nate was the soloist in the early nineties playing all those high notes um, and 
we all, you know, we know people by name because there's so few people, you know. So, you know, that's an interesting perspective, Brian. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I actually was just looking through my 98 Cadets yearbook just to see the the pictures uh, of everyone. And there's not a single black person in the horn line, not one. And there were two in the percussion section and two in the color guard. And the two in the percussion section were Tim Green and Damon Grant, who I am good friends with. Oh, no, did Tim March 98? No, Tim didn't March 98. No, Tim didn't March 98. Damon was in the pit. And um, what's that, brother? I know his name, too. Axel, right? So, like, you know, that's, you know, that's the experience. I talked to Damon the other day, and Damon actually, you know, helped me out with some information because I was under the assumption that Damon was the first black drum major at Cadets. He was the drum major the following year. Uh, But actually, there was a gentleman, and I've actually met him before I forgot about it, that um, in the 70s. And he came up to me, Bob, after a show. I, it popped into my head after Damon told me. This guy came to a show up in Jersey, and I was still in the court. And he was like, hey, brother, keep doing what you're doing. You're making us proud. You know what I'm saying? like, Because I was a soloist every year at Cadets. You know, I, it's, it's an interesting perspective because uh, a friend of mine brought this to my attention. Usually the African-Americans that make drum corps are stellar members. Look at the Richard Alvarado. Richard, I don't think you really realize how much of an influence you've had on the generation that's going to come up behind you. For a lot of people that don't know, that Richard, that video of Richard playing the solo that's circulating around Facebook, I recorded that video. It was at the end of a, a rehearsal right before our ensemble. We had just finished the brass rehearsal. And I was like, hey, Richard, man, um, I at the time, Bob, I was teaching at Prairie View A&M University down in uh, Texas, in, uh, right outside of Houston. And all um, the guys in my tuba section knew who Richard was. And Richard had never met these guys before. And I was like, hey, Richard, man, you got a lot of fans. So I recorded that video. And to this day, that's probably the most viewed video that I've ever put on Facebook. You know, like, Richard, you're touching people that you don't even know, man. And I think that's why, Bob, what you're doing here is so important is that people get to get a different experience. Like Brian was saying that, man, look at that guy. He, He may not look exactly like me. But at the end of the summer, he looks like me, and, uh, <laughs> and he's the and he he just played the hardest tuba solo to ever be played in DCI ever. Like that's saying something, Richard. You will always go down as playing the hardest tuba solo ever, and guys are gonna watch your videos and say, "Man, that dude was incredible." So, you know, diversity is not just you know, I'm black, you're white. It's I'm super talented on my instrument. And, you know, I want to be looked at as a great musician, not just a black member. I appreciate that, Rick. And, and it, you know, the opportunity wasn't presented by just me, you know, like I, I always refer to, you know, it's cliche, but it's true, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, right. you guys, you know, each of you, Doug Thrower for being crazy and writing that, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> It's, you know, like I said earlier, it's, I'm, I'm just thankful that people took me for the person and musician I was, you know? Yeah. Well, before we continue our discussion, let's take a quick break to hear from a couple of our sponsors for this episode. Ammon Design is the exclusive mouthpiece manufacturer for the Blue Coats. 
Carl Hammond is recognized by players all over the world for his commitment to excellence through superior craftsmanship and professionalism. That's why Bluecoats trust Hammond and why we feel you should get the experience of sound in HD. Visit carlhammonddesign.com to get started. That's Carl with a K, hammonddesign.com. This podcast is funded in part by the sustaining members of The Shield. The Shield is a monthly giving society dedicated to protecting the future of Bluecoats. Donors give monthly and support Bluecoats programs, and as a thank you, they receive insider access to content and special events. To become a sustaining member, visit bluecoats.com slash the shield. All right. So, Rick and Brian, you've been on staff with different organizations for several years now. And, Richard, you just aged out, but as you said, you're now on staff with cadets. Can you talk about your experience now as a staff member and how that may be different than your experience as a marching member? And, I, you know, Richard, obviously it's very new for you, but uh, based on your limited experience so far, can you talk a little bit about what that's been like? Yeah, so um, as a teacher – you know, regardless of, because I've had op- opportunities, um, you know, to teach many different things, many different types of kids. Um, and I've always made it my number one goal, you know, whether it's a beginning trombone student or a college kid in drum corps who isn't much younger than I am. Um, I teach the student, you know, regardless of their background, regardless of what they look like. Um, you know, I teach the student and that's that's my passion that's my job you know so it's just it's been great you know and like i said i don't think twice about what what color are they you know they're the student in front of me so i'm going to teach them because that's what they deserve um and i've i'm glad that i've had students of you know diverse and vast ranges of you know economic background cultural background you name it any category you know i'm i'm glad that i've had students of all types um, to teach, and regardless of what those types are, they deserve to be taught music, just like anyone else, you know. So that's that's my that's on the forefront of my mind always when I'm, you know, teaching anybody. What about you, Brian? It's it's there was once uh, one time uh, when I was teaching with the Vanguard, I had to put one of one of my colleagues in check a little bit. Uh, uh, this person was talking about where they grew up. Uh, the person was uh, white, and uh, he used to say that you know uh, he and his friends were used to hang out on the porch, um, and he's, they used to call each other porch monkeys, which it, it's a racial slur. And uh, it, you know it was him and his white friends who used to say that. I remember, I remember standing uh, on the bus and I remember hearing that, and immediately stopping that conversation right there. And it's like you, that's if you called each other that, that's don't do that because it's wrong, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, that was between a staff member. That's the only negative experience that I've had. Everything else has been pretty solid. Uh, when I was teaching with the Columbus States, that was one of the few organizations where everybody that was in charge was uh, a black, a black person, uh, Marshall Cheatham and LaRon Carlton. And I always really, uh, gravitated to those two because I'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, Light of Any, the small parade group that I was in a long time ago, uh, same thing. I was run by two African-American 
Uh, gentlemen, both are extremely good musicians. You know, so like that, it's it's an anomaly, kind of like I was saying before, like that both those both of those organizations were in a way unicorns because they're being led by African American men. You know, but as a staff member towards towards the kids that I teach, you know, it's a lot like Richard. You just teach. You know, nobody does anything wrong because of the color of their skin or who they are. That you just teach and make them better, and you you try to be great. You work twice as hard, like I had said before, because I don't want to be assumed like I'm slacking on my teaching skills or the information I'm giving to the students. You know, you study twice as much. You learn the book and everything about the book twice as fast. You really just try and stay on top of your game. But a lot of that comes from my uh, my upbringing and my parents. So yeah, generally, it's been pretty good, though. What about you, Rick? So as... My, the, when it comes to DCI, um, so, someone once asked me, what's the difference in teaching DCI and then teaching other ensembles? And my answer is absolutely none. Like, to me, there's no difference in teaching DCI to any other ensemble that I've ever taught. I'm going into my 15th year uh, as an educator. And I, ta- I taught my HBCU band the same way I taught my middle school band, which was the same way I taught you know, the the cadets when I was there in the blue coat. Education shouldn't have a color. And I think that's what we're all saying here is, you know, the way I teach and the way I try to reach young people doesn't have a color. It just so happens that I'm an African-American man in, a, in an activity that is, you know, predominantly white. And that's also in my in my career. You know, I'm a doctoral student in conducting. I'm also a professor at the University of Connecticut. And, you know, here, our students are, majority of our students don't look like me, but I don't want to use that as a crutch. I want to say, hey, man, you know, for some, most of our students, this is the first interactions they've had with African-American teachers. I literally received an email a couple of days ago from one of my students saying, you know, showing his support uh, to me through this experience. And it made my day, but also saying, you know, I've only had two African-American teachers since I've been a student, period. And those two African-American teachers were here. So I think that, you know, to to separate DCI from anything, I think would be a mistake for anyone. But my experience, you know, as, as an educator in DCI was, a you know, I learned a lot in this activity. You know, my first year of teaching was right after I aged out, just like you, Richard. Uh, in 2005, I taught the cadets. I was the I was on visual staff, believe it or not, y'all. <laughs> I taught marching <laughs> my first year after I aged out. Daniel Benton well, had just started his family, so they needed another uh, uh, brass uh, trumpet tech uh, that summer. And I did the whole summer, y'all. I did not go home one day. <laughs> so that's Richard. That's, that's a that'll show you how drum corps used to be, man. They flew in. <laughs> Hop said, "You get one plane ticket," and I flew in, and I didn't go home to the end. So uh, <laughs> I taught the whole summer and it was challenging, you know, A, it was challenging Brian and Richard because I was teaching people I had marched with the year before. So to go from a marching member to, uh, you know, an instructor was a challenge. And those guys made my life so easy. Y'all. Like I was the section leader in 2004. So to them, it was the same thing. I did have an issue that summer because there was a female trumpet member who was from Georgia, 
who decided she was going to make my life a living hell that summer. And I got pulled aside by the um, core director. And instead of him hearing what I had to say, the first thing out of his mouth was everybody can't teach like a certain staff member that was on at that time. And I took the, I took offense to that because a, I wasn't, I was definitely not trying to be the staff member that he was comparing me to. And then B for him, for me to be on staff and you not even ask me a question as to what happened, you know, really rubbed me the wrong way. So I took that as, okay, I need to be better. And all these roadblocks that come up in your life, you know, whether it's getting cut from a drum corps, whether it's, you know, falling out of love with the first love you ever had, whatever that is, you need to use all these experiences as a learning experience. How can I make myself better? How can I affect the lives of people in a more positive way? And that's been my experience by, with teaching. You you know, everybody that teaches with me at Blue Coast knows I'm the guy. I like positive vibes, man. I don't like arguing. I don't like all the back and forth bickering. That's just not my personality. You know, I want to be the guy that brings people together. But on the other hand, you know, we got to be great. You know, we have to do everything that it takes to be a great drum corps. So, you know, I, that that's that's the way I approach education in general, not just, you know, the DCI. Yeah. Do any of you have any thoughts on the lack of black leadership in DCI, whether it's as a drum major or student leaders or like core administrators? I, I think... It, it, for me, it's catch twenty two because there's not that there is a lack of membership, black membership within the activity. So then that turns into staff, which then turns into administration, which then you know it. For me, it's 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 all catch twenty two because there aren't enough of us in the activity really to begin with. Then that, in turn, in a very long term, goes into the drum major aspect, the student leadership aspect, the, you know, administrators um, really working. It's all, all working all the way up to the, the very top of uh, the organization, you know, so it, I mean, it's definitely there and it sucks. Uh, and I wish that it wasn't the case, which hopefully the conversation that we're having now sparks that conversation and causes the rest of the activity uh, other drum corps and DCI uh, as a whole to evaluate their membership, uh, whether it's, you know, various boards or how they choose student leadership or drum majors or whatever it may be. You know, we, I think we all know that it's there. There's just, there's gotta be some change that happens throughout the activity. So, yeah. I guess the question, Brian, is how do you affect change though? Because I mean, this is 2020. Mm-hmm. And this is the first year that there's ever been a uh, African American core director in the in a, at a Division One drum um, uncle, you know Brian with Seattle uh, Cascades, and you know what what type of message does that send? Does it send the message that oh we're trying, or does it send the message that oh this you know this gentleman was talented enough to you know take over a world class drum corps? Is this the first time that that was ever a, a, a possibility? You know like. I agree with you with this, you know, the fact that that it goes up the chain, you know, from membership to drum major and so forth. You know, Blue Coast, we we have a um, our co-conductor this year, David, is an African-American. And, you know, the challenges I'm sure he faces, you know, in that leadership position, 
you know, I can only imagine that's a conversation I would love to have with him, you know, but like, you know, with my experiences going from having, you know, my first year in drum corps, a gentleman that, you know, to this day, I still talk to Don Taylor is one of the biggest, you know, influences on my trumpet playing. Like I said, he was one of the few people that took an interest in me when I marched Crossman. He followed my career um, as I, you know, became an educator and moved up in drum corps. And and Don is not, uh, you know, a black man. Don is a white man from Georgia, you know. But the same way that, you know, Eric Prince plays such a, a important role in my life, so did he. So when it comes to, like, leadership, we're not asking people to give us anything. We don't feel like you, we deserve it just because we're black. We're just asking for opportunity, you know, the same opportunity, you know, and just not to be controversial here, but Bob, you know, like when you think about like every single caption head job that's ever existed, in my opinion, those jobs were always filled by word of mouth. Or oh, this person talked with that person. So they must be a good educator. Or this person talked with this particular drum corps. So we want to we want to be as successful as that drum corps. So, you know, that person, let's, let's hire somebody from that staff. You know, and back in the 90s, you know, that was the Blue Devils. Blue Devils always have had great horn lines. Always. 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, and then when, you know, Crown really stepped on the scene and started being the amazing horn line that they are, you know, that led to different opportunities. There, there's never been a process where they, where, in my opinion, where you can say, you know what, let's open this up to where people can apply to be a uh, caption head. Let's really, if we want to truly make this about diversity, let's put everybody on the table. Let's look at resumes. Let's get them in front of the horn line. Let's see what this person can do. Let's make it an actual process that's fair to everyone. That's the way you open up opportunity. It's not you know, he says, here says, you know, with different drum corps or different people. Ultimately, that's the thing, Bob, that DCI is going to have to explore with themselves. You know, look at the, look at the DCI board. There's not a lot of diversity there. It's, 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 it's deeply rooted in this whole organization that provides such great life experiences. I would not be that where I am right now, I would not be able to have the life I had if it wasn't for this activity. But I also understand that in order for me to truly say I love this activity, I must be able to also criticize it when it's not right. So I think that's what this this whole thing that's happening right now, the importance of it, is for DCI to look at itself, for the Blue Coats to look at itself, for the cadets, for every single drum corps to look at itself and say, if I truly care about diversity, let's take a snapshot of my staff. And if that staff, that snapshot doesn't look like what I think it should look like, then I got some issues to address. All right, so the primary job for each of you away from DCI is being a public school band director. And so, Richard, you're getting your first job as a middle school director in Prosper, Texas. And, Brian, you're the new director of bands at Homestead High School in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And, Rick, you're the associate director of athletic bands at the University of Connecticut. So can you talk a little bit about what um, your experience is like as a music educator? away from DCI? The, the school that I teach at, the area, um, the, specifically the area around the school is predominantly white. The experience has been largely good. I, re, I remember being a little skeptical joining uh, joining the, the faculty at Homestead, just 
because of who I am. You know, I did I I had no idea how the community would accept me because I do a good job, or at least I think I do a good job. They haven't fired me yet. Um, you know, I, I I am accepted, and with this recent promotion to running the program, um, I think that speaks speaks very much to my talents. I I am conscious of it on a daily basis when I teach. I do my best not to talk about being black because I don't want that to be misconstrued as trying to incite something that I don't mean to. Uh, even though that is clearly who I am, you can look at me and tell that. But it's, I mean, I, I walk into school every day and do the best I can and, and do the do whatever I can to give my kids the best musical experience possible. And if there's ever a discussion that comes up about where I come from or my ethnicity or anything like that, I address it and talk about it because it's clear. There's, I'm not going to hide behind it. And then we keep it moving from there. So, yeah. Uh, so my experience at uh, UConn is a refreshing uh, experience. Like the kids are great. Uh, it's a lot different than my previous experiences because I taught middle school. I've taught at every level, so middle, high, and college. Um, the middle school I taught at was actually the middle school I went to when I first started playing trumpet. So it's in the middle of a black community. Um, I taught there for seven years, um, where I also taught at uh, one of the more competitive bands in the state of Virginia, Princess Anne High School. And I think that experience really helped me move to all the other teaching experiences I had. I, One of my best friends is a gentleman, the director of bands at uh, Princess Anne High School, a gentleman named Mr. John Boyd. Um, John helped me grow as an educator, as a person, everything. John um, his family's uh, from the Maryland area. He went to Jacksonville State when, the, you know, we all know Jacksonville's band, like that huge, that, that behemoth. And they've always been a good band. And he's, and he, you know, he's all Jack State. And But the thing I really learned from him is that, you know, how to be a professional, how to do this job, you know, as a professional. So um, that band was completely different than the ones I was used to teaching. So when I got to the college level, it's like I went, you know, predominantly black band, not predominantly black. Then I went, you know, to an HBCU and it was a beautiful experience. I loved my time at Prairie View and, you know, and so when I went to UConn, that was like starting all over again and really learning a different side of what we do as educators. Like I said earlier, you know, there are students that go to UConn that may not have ever had an experience with a black educator before. So in addition to me just wanting to be an amazing teacher and amazing professor and, you know, impart the knowledge I have into the lives of these people. But, I, you know, I am absolutely committed to painting African-Americans in a different light than what we see on TV. You know, I think that's I think that's a big issue, too, is, you know, media paints us, you know, every time you see a black person on TV, it's either in a negative role, you know, or in, you know, you know, the ball player role or the rapper role, you know, Dr. Ben Carson's not one of my favorite people, but this man was, you know, the first person to perform brain surgery at the level that he did with uh, separating um, Siamese twins. So, you know, that person, that type of person is not talked about, but I guarantee you, you know, with these people that never been, you know, have experienced, you know, black educators before, they can name you, you know, 10 or 15 people 
that don't go down that, you know, that same path. So I take my experience as UConn as an opportunity to A, grow as an educator um, and really, you know, work with amazing people. You know, our staff is amazing. Our, our students are great. Um, has that, has it always been easy? No, you know, I, you know, and I address these issues directly with our students. You know, when I first arrived at the university, you know, I was replacing a gentleman that had been there for over 20 years, you know, and he was very, very beloved. He was also an African-American. So, you know, our personalities are different, you know, and, and they had to get used to the differences between he, he and I. And that it took a little time, but, you know, I've been there for three years now and I think I'm doing a good job. Like Brian said, I haven't been fired yet. So, (laughs) um, you know, I enjoy my time with the UConn band. I think that, you know, a lot of people have seen that, you know, the challenges we're facing with, you know, with COVID and our season um, already been taken from its traditional setting to a more online setting. But, um, you know, the UConn band, UCMB, is a great organization. Um, shout out to Dr. David Mills. He's uh, just finished his 30th year with the program, and he's been a great mentor to me and really helping me grow. So I just want to, you know, with UConn, those those people have been amazing. And, you know, our leadership has really made, helped try to make this transition uh, a little more uh, easy. Being in Prosper, um, obviously the year hasn't started yet, but I've been fortunate enough to be able to, be up there quite a bit, just working on stuff and, and getting to meet a couple kids, um, especially virtually, but like Brian and um, the homestead area, it's pretty affluent, you know, economically. Um, and I've, I don't, I can't say that I've, I've met uh, more respectful kids. You know, the kids are just fantastic. The staff that I work with um, my colleagues, they're, they're great mentors, especially to me as a young teacher. And, you know, administration from campus to district level, you know, superintendent, fine arts administration, um, I, I can't ask for anything better. And the situation is, is, you know, I'm blessed to have that situation, especially as a first year teacher. Like, like I said earlier, I, and, you know, like we've all said, our, our job is to be there for the kids, even if it's not music related, you know, like, it's just about forming that relationship with them regardless, you know, regardless of if they look like me or not. And much like all three of our experiences, um, a lot of what we're doing now, you know, we are the minority with our students and our our colleagues. And it's kind of been that way for me my whole life, you know, growing up in Mansfield ISD. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but, and they can't tell by looking at Mansfield ISD today, but Mansfield ISD was the last school district in Texas to desegregate. Today, I can say it's one of the most economically, culturally, racially diverse districts that I've seen. And for it to thrive the way it does today, I think that says a lot to um, what kind of growth and what kind of improvement just what's what once was a small school district can do. You know, you take that and you look at the bigger thing, like the bigger picture. One of the most separated school districts in the 60s is now the school district that I see as home for me. You know what I mean? Like it's and it's it's a special growth that not a lot of places have had. And a lot of that is, you know, because of the district and the city leadership. You know, I'm 
a firm believer in my faith and, and, you know, the administration and the mayors that we've had have had great relationships with Mansfield's churches of all sorts. And I think that accredits a lot of the growth and a lot of the improvement that the district has seen just because of how, and, you know, this is coming from me, how connected with God it's been throughout its growth. And um, I think that that's what a lot of places need now. You know, it's just love. You know, Mansfield was very separated and very divided, but now Mansfield is all love, you know, and that's, if you look at the bigger picture of things, if you take a whole Metroplex and do that, or take a whole state and do that, or take a whole country and do that, you know, all all we need is love, you know, it's it's song lyrics, it's on t-shirts, it's on plaques, you know, like that's the biggest thing is for us to love our kids, for our kids to love each other, and for us to love our communities, and for our communities to love one another. Um, and I think just speaking from the perspective of a product of Mansfield ISD, that the growth that Mansfield has seen, you know, it's because of the love it's had with its um, citizens. Um, so if Mansfield could do it, I think anybody, any community can do it. So Rick and Brian, uh, as hopefully people listening to this have seen the other day, the blue coats, um, announced their new advisory council, which, uh, you two are kind of heading up some of that. So can you tell us a little bit about what that project is? Yeah. Um, so that project, uh, will involve, uh, obviously Rick and I, and it's a, an initiative that was launched by, uh, Mike Scott and Genevieve Geisler. So it's a huge shout out to those two to even think about putting something like, like this together, uh, especially in the wake of what's going on, uh, in the country, but, uh, it's going to involve a couple more staff members. Um, uh, one of our, uh, current members and basically we're, we're going to get together and spend time talking about how we can, um, educate, um, not only the membership and the staff, um, but, uh, just look to create the diversity of within the organization. Um, but obviously there is some within the membership and, uh, the staff, uh, but really doing justice to see that everybody has a seat at the table, um, that we're not creating, um, any sort of uh, exclusion within the organization. Yeah, that's, that's really the, the biggest part of it. It's just making sure that we're, we're leading the, the change in diversity uh, within our own organization uh, and hopefully being the voice um, and the pioneers within the activity to see that other drum corps are doing the same thing. And hopefully that influences uh, Drum Corps International to take those steps of creating uh, true diversity within the activity. Yeah, just making sure there's there's action. You know, there's a lot of talk uh, happening right now, which is very, very important. You know, people are having conversations with one another that may have never even spoken to one another before. Uh, so just being, you know, the Blue Coats, in my opinion, has always been like a beacon of 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 transcending, you know, norms and doing things the, the old way. And then that's, a, in my opinion, another, you know, way that they are showing that. And um, we have new people signing on every day. We've uh, we have uh, two other staff members that have um, already committed. Mr. Justin Johnson is on the visual staff, and Mr. Kevin Kwok, who's also on the uh, brass staff, um, have signed on. So we're just um, 
you know, really trying to, you know, affect positive change, as Brian said. And I think that, you know, with Mike's uh, and Genevieve's leadership, um, with the core, you know, we can take these, you know, challenges and solutions, most importantly, to DCI and, you know, try to affect some change. A question that I have, and in, in some of this is, is maybe it's just more because of who I am and, and the type of person I am being sort of more introverted is what do you say to someone? And, and again, I'll preface this again, because this is a thought that kind of runs through my head. And, and I'll say like when I, when I first met you all or, or people of really any color is what do you say to someone that truly doesn't believe they're racist, but is always afraid of saying or doing something that may give off the wrong impression? So my, like I said, my experiences at Blue Coats have been great. Um, but I want to bring up one instance. There was a member of, uh, I've been with the Blue Coats since 2014. So I've, I've taught a lot of students through the Blue Coats. And one of the members of my trumpet section uh, over the last couple of years, uh, every time he would see me, it was not an, out of malice, but it was, it was just every time he would see me, he would change his voice to talk to me. So like he would be talking normally to other students and then he would be like, hey, what's up, Rick? Like change his voice to like this hip hop style, like almost like he was rapping or something like that. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, do I do I talk like that? He's like, no. So why would you think it's okay to address me in that manner? And it's just little things like that. I don't think this student is was a racist or anything like that, but I think that there are there are misconceptions of other races that people hold just because they don't genuinely generally deal with these races that, like I said, they get their interpretation of who we are from television. And I think when you're dealing, I think it is absolutely essential, Bob, that when someone is doing something that is inappropriate, that you address it right there on the spot, because if you don't, it will become normal behavior. But on the other hand, I don't think that all people are racist. I just don't. Or all white people are racist. I just don't. I don't feel that way. But I feel like uh, we all have implicit biases that we all need to be addressing on, you know, a daily, uh, you know, just daily. And I think that being positive, like Richard said, with love and, you know, and appreciation, but also being willing to check somebody if they're wrong, you know, being able to have the tough conversation. Yeah, you're not going to disrespect me. I love you. But at the end of the day, I'm still a man. You know, like, you know, I hate to say this, Bob, in this way, but I haven't had more interest in my career until the last week or two. You know, and that comes from a bunch of people that I think are truly being advocates in in this in this time. But I also think that it it proves the point that people are making you know brian has been an educator for years you know richard one of the best soloists to ever come through the dci activity you know but you know only now are people really taking you know notice of these great educators and, and musicians and it's just it's specifically in reaction to what's happening so you know when you talk you have somebody you know they might not even know they're being racist but at the end of the day addressing it directly in whatever manner you feel is appropriate at that particular time 
and just being being genuine to yourself. You can't be one way one second and then, you know, another way another, being consistent and being an educator in every facet of your life, I guess. But also understanding, Bob, this last point is that it's not every Black person's job to teach everyone about not being racist. That's something you're going to have to address with yourself. It is tiresome, Bob, always having to tell people, you know, the right and wrong thing to do. You know, like diversity shouldn't be something that we have to work at. Talent should dictate, you know, who gets the job and all. Not looking at a resume and, you know, and saying, oh, this person's name looks too black or looks too ethnic. So I'm not going to give that person an opportunity. And these are challenges we face all the time. I taught in Houston. We at the university I taught at, we used to, there was this this thing, the unwritten thing where we knew that certain cities wouldn't take our students' application seriously because they went to the school that they went to. Not because of any other reason other than, you know, this person's school says Prairie View, this person's school says this other institution that we respect a little more. So we're not going to give this student an opportunity. We're going to give this student an opportunity. They would say that's not racist, but at the end of the day, majority of the students that come out of Prairie View are African-American students. Majority of the students that come out of UT are not. That is a, a excellent school to me, probably, you know, one of the best schools in the world. But to assume that a student from this university is less than because they went to a show style school is, is in my opinion, unacceptable. And having those challenging conversations, I think, is, is going to be super important as we move forward. What is your best advice? And even though you just sort of said, you know, it gets tiresome to talk about it, you know, what is your best advice then for non-black people to help support this movement? For me, it's being okay with being uncomfortable. I think that from my perspective, the, the conversations that I've had with friends, band parents, people in the community, you know, who, whatever, that usually is the biggest concern is, you know, they, the, the whole situation is really sad or they're having to address things with themselves that are, they're not comfortable with, or they don't like, or, or whatever it is. I mean, you, you, I think all of us have to accept that this is going to make us all be extremely uncomfortable. I'm sure like most people with the, the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, even though, the death itself happened, you know, a little while ago. I think people are really starting to kind of show where they stand on, on a lot of these situations. I unfortunately have spent more time on Facebook than I think I had ever planned to, but, you know, but it's just saying where people stand, where the narrative um, has shifted towards, you know, so I, I, I think people are going to have to be okay with being uncomfortable. Um, asking questions. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Even from our community, I think the people within our community have to be okay with answering those questions. But like Rick said, it's not our responsibility to turn it into a, a lecture and talk about why we feel the way that we do. You know, so that that's a big thing for me. It's just being okay with being uncomfortable and and asking the questions that you need to ask in order to allow for you to get to a place where you understand better or can accept the other side of the situation. 
Richard, I'm a, I'm anxious to hear like from a younger perspective, man. Like you went to TCU and you know and how great you guys, you know, program is. Like, have you had to have any of these tough conversations with your friends and stuff at, from school or your girlfriend or anything like that? So, like you've all said, I mean, my goal, I I didn't look at it as I'm going to be a great black teacher. I looked at it as I'm going to be a great teacher. It doesn't matter. Like no, I never really thought twice about, you know, what I look like. I never really thought that, you know, I have to, you know, educate these people like this. Um, and like you said, it's, it's not my job to do that, but at the same time, it's, you know, like I said, there's not really been any colleagues or teachers I've had, you know, that treated me any, like, like what you said, Rick, you mentioned kids from Prairie View just being overlooked just because they're from Prairie View. I never felt like I was being feared, you know, and, and if you look at my last name, it's a Hispanic last name, you know, but I'm, I don't look like that. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a, it's tough because I haven't experienced what many people that look like me have. So my perspective on it is a little bit different just because I never you know, like the people around me see me physically more than I see myself physically, even though, you know, coming from Lake Ridge High School, even going to TCU, teaching in Prosper, you know, I've always been the minority in those groups. And I've just never really had to worry about not having the same perspective put on me or the same spotlight put on me just because I worked you know, and that's all I worried about. I just worked about making myself better and not, you know, oh, I hope because I'm black, I hope that this will work out. I just practiced my butt off. I studied my butt off. You know, I took any opportunity I had to learn and it, it pays off, you know, because and like you guys said, I, it should be on who's the most qualified and who's the most talented and not who looks like this. You know, so that's my perspective on it. So where do we go from here? Hmm. Um, I think first and foremost, Bob, is what Brian was saying, the conversation itself. But as with so many things in American society, we can talk until we're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, there has to be action. I think that, you know, and I guess this goes back to your last question. How can people support the movement? is by not only telling your black friends how sorry you are that they've had the life they've had, you know, we're, we're used to this life. You know, our parents dealt with this life and they taught us how to deal with this life. But, you know, having the conversation, telling you to support them. Yeah, that's important. But now actually come up with actionable goals. So in this, you know, what we're doing here, you know, it's from a drum corps perspective, what is DCI going to do? to make sure that there is more than just Brian out there at um, Seattle Cascades? What are they going to do to make sure that the board of directors um, is more diversified? And then that trickles down, you know, like what are, you know, Blue Coats, we've already taken the first step. You know, we, we can sit here and we can act like everything's perfect, Bob, but at the end of the day, we know it's not, you know, and that will open up a broader conversation. Why isn't there more diverse music done in DCI? Why does everybody have to do win ensemble music with double tonguing and triple tonguing in it in order to win a blast title? You know, like 
Let's, I mean, let's let's have those double, you know, those tough conversations. Can um, a Talib Kweli show or a Tribe Called Quest show be just as, you know, artistic and creative as a Rachmaninoff show or whoever? Culture is not, you know, it's it's convenient to borrow from black culture when it's when it suits the particular thing. You know, a couple of years ago the Cavies did that uh, framework show and they put that little fight club scene in doing hip hop beats and dancing. Everybody went crazy, you know, and they won a title with that. And I was, I was marching then. I was absolutely sure that that was the direction that drum corps was going to go. All right, man, this next year, everybody's going to be doing fight club and, and dancing and stuff. And that didn't happen, you know, and it, it's okay, you know, for diversity to be a part of this activity. So, having a tough conversation, putting together actionable objectives that we can actually achieve now, but then having the tough conversation for the things that people don't want to talk about and then diversifying this activity in a way that makes it so students that look like us want to actually participate. You know, there are some drum corps that don't interest certain people because they aren't interested in the style of music that they perform, you know, and that, that may even be blue coats, you know, if I'm this world-class or- orchestra trumpet player, I may not be interested in blue coats. I wish you would be, but you know, but but you know, you know, that may not be, you know, for that person. But knowing that there's an avenue by for everybody that's interested in music and has a love of music to be able to express themselves artistically without being judged, or the community saying, "Oh, I don't know how to judge this." or I don't know how to approach this particular thing because it's different than the orchestral music or went on some music that I teach every week. So just something to think about, you know, and I know that conversation has been started already, but I think it's super important. And then lastly, I'll get out of the way for you guys, um, actually investing Bob, in, in underserved communities. DCI needs to be at the Honda Battle of the Bands. DCI needs to be at the Houston Battle of the Bands. DCI needs to be at the HBCU consortium in Atlanta. You know, if you are truly committed to getting black people in this activity, then you need to go to black people. You need to offer, you know, ways for black people to be involved in this activity, whether that's financial, whether that's investment in the visual side, because usually that's the thing that keeps HBCU style members out of DCI is because the marching styles are so different. So maybe investment in that. And just ultimately just say, putting your money and your time where your mouth is. If you really want diversity, then go get the people you want. It's all action. Yep. At the end of the day, the, that's the, the thing with this entire situation. Uh, I mean, it, it was brought out of police brutality, but race in general um, has come up I can't even fathom how many times it's come up, even in my lifetime, and I'm not that old, but it's always just come up. There's always been protests, and then about 10 to 14 days later, it's all gone away. You know, the COVID-19 didn't exist when George Floyd passed away. You know, and now it's starting to come back into, which is important, obviously. I mean, we're all at home, and there's no drunk worth this summer, but like COVID-19 didn't exist for like three or four days. Now it's starting to exist a little bit more. The action has gone down. The, a lot of the conversations have stopped, you know, except for what we're doing right now. So 
It's all about action. What are we going to do to create a world for the kids that are come, going to come after us and the activity? Uh, and even my son, he's six. You know, what, what type of world are we going to create for him and the students that are going to come in the activity and whatnot uh, that's going to be more equipped to serve everybody and give everybody an equal seat at the table? With everything going on in the world now, there's obviously a a ton of information out there now as far as resources to learn and educate yourself more and places to donate. And we could go on for a long time just listing through a a ton of things. A few places that you can go right now just to get some general information to get yourself started would be blacklivesmatter.com, naacp.org, or neaedjustice.org as far as just general information about how you can educate yourself and help and support. Um, or for the last one for the NEA is more on the, the education side of things since we're all educators. So there's, there's lots more places. It's not just those you can go. So we highly encourage people to just go out and, and inform themselves about what's going on. And as many people have said, the the difference between not being a racist and being anti-racist. So we got a lot of work to do. So as we get ready to finish up this episode, got a couple other just sort of housekeeping things to talk about. And then we want to get some of your thoughts on this real quick. Um, As we've been going on with our ballot contest the last uh, several weeks, we're now into round 2A for our best ballot contest. And you can see the bracket for that on our podcast webpage on the Blue Coats website. And so in round 2A, we've got 2014's Hymn of Axiom is going up against 2017's Grow Till Tall. And then we have the battle between 2018's Sarrow going against 2019's Blackbird. And so we had about uh, 800 votes in round 1A to get us down to these four. And we saw one extremely close battle between Grow Till Tall and the 88 version of Autumn Leaves. After all, 800 votes, there was only a difference of eight votes that Grow Till Tall won by. So make sure you get your uh, vote in for this round. And voting for round 2A will end on Sunday, June 21st. It's open now. And you can vote at bluco.at slash ballad 2A. And or you could just go to the link in the episode description or go to our Brass Podcast webpage. And so you can see the full bracket as well as the breakdown of the voting for each round. So since all of you are around for multiple of these, and Rick, you've been around for all four, what are your thoughts on these two matchups? We'll start with you, Richard. For the first one, what was it? Uh, him of 2014 and 2017. Yeah. Grotos, okay, with that one, I'm going to go with 2014 um, just because that's the ballad that actually made me want to be a blue coat the second one uh, 2018 versus 2019 I'm gonna go with 2019 not just because of the music you know which that's the, the the big part of it but just the staging of the whole thing even as an audience member going back and watching it that's just it's just gen- like genius the way everything works with with itself so I'm going to go with um, Hemavaxium and Blackbird. What about you, Ryan? Oh, man. You know, I'm probably in very much in the extreme minority with this one. I like Grotel Tall. We did a, we did a, a, a 
was accorded a standstill at Ball State. And that was, I think, the only time that summer everything was like front, field, or face the audience, whatever. It was cool. Uh, Hit a vacuum is it's cool because of how that developed with the two horn lines in the corners of the field and whatnot. But I'll be I'll be in the minority and say 17. Uh, as far as 18 and 19, man, 18. 19 was cool. 18, uh, I remember the course singing that uh, at Indiana Wesleyan inside. And emotionally, I don't think I've ever seen something like that from a drum corps during move-ins, which is a super hard period of time, you know, but you know, the kids were crying and the environment was just incredible. I'll never forget that. So 17 and 18, that's my vote. And Rick. (laughs) So I'm going to go with the majority on uh, round one. I was there for both and I'll leave my comments in my head, but I'm going to go with 2014 him of action. A, well, I'll, I'll say this. I, the main reason why I'm choosing Hymn of Axiom is because Hymn of Axiom is my favorite DCI ballad of all time. Um, there's three ballads that stick out in my head. The Blue Coats and the Cadets perform one, and that was Dancer in the Dark ballad. To me, that that was number one for almost ten, like for, forever for me until 2014. I think that Hymn of Axiom is the best ballad ever on the DCI field. So I'm going to stick with that one. So this round was like super easy for me. Next. Um, <laughs> as far as 18 and 19, I'm going to go with 18. Now, I, now let me just preface it by saying, Justin, don't kill me. Uh, the uh, Flugelhorn solo is from 19. <laughs> is one of my students, everybody. He's actually a recent UConn grad. Um, so Justin, don't kill me. But I'm going to go with 18. And I think the reason why I like 18 so much was a teaching. It was amazing. I can remember following the trumpet section around yelling, trying to get that buddy up and buddy up and buddy up in time. <laughs> Look at the trumpet major. <laughs> um, I think because it's so different because even though it's considered a ballad, it was like at one, it was like at 180, one, I think. Yeah. 180. Yeah. So having a ballad at 180, but still being considered a ballad. And then that B-flat chord at the end, man, like splitting the sky. I used to tell the trumpet section, every time you get to that section, I want you to imagine like the part, the clouds party and my face comes to the clouds like. (laughs) 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 The B-flat chord, the lead up to it and the timing, marching at 180 with a chair in your hand. And and putting that chair down and and eighteen was the was was it for me. So I'm going fourteen, no question. And then uh, 2018, and we'll see how that goes from there. Awesome. Yeah, let's go ahead and get those uh, votes in. Ends on June 21st at 10 p.m. Eastern time. That will go ahead and wrap it up for another episode. Thank you, Rick, Brian, and Richard for joining us and telling us your stories and in all of your experiences. And I hope people were able to learn and understand and realize that, that there's change that needs to happen. So don't forget to subscribe or check back every other Monday for a new episode of the Blue Coats Brass Podcast.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Blue Coats Brass Podcast. Please tell your friends about our podcast and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have any topics you'd like to suggest or questions for us to answer in future episodes, please email us at brasspodcast at bluecoats.com. You can catch us on Instagram at bluecoats or at bluebrass, spelled B-L-O-O brass. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle bluecoats. To learn more about the Bluecoats organization and all of its offerings, visit us on the web at bluecoats.com. Our podcast is made possible in part from the support of Hammond Design, the official mouthpiece designer and manufacturer of the Bluecoats Drum and Bugle Corps. As a performance partner of the Bluecoats, we trust HD with our sound, and we think you should too. Learn more at carlhammonddesign.com to get started. That's Carl with a K, HammondDesign.com.